All right, we continue this morning in our study of Hebrews chapter 11, which we've entitled The Hall of Faith. As we see the different individuals that God has chosen to highlight for us within this chapter, we are reminded of one of those institutions that we find across our country that in, you know, encapsulate the uh, record careers of individual, either football, baseball, basketball, um, NASCAR, rock and roll, whatever it may be. These places that we call the Hall of Fame. But in our particular case, as we are finding ourselves now in Hebrews chapter 11, it's more appropriate to call this the Hall of Faith. For these are ordinary individuals that were used by God in extraordinary ways, experienced God in extraordinary ways. And it wasn't because they were someone special. Often when we think about the characters mentioned in the Bible, we often surround them in our mind's eye with stained glass. But these were ordinary people just like you and I that God used in extraordinary ways. He did so for the sole purpose of the uh, retention and retaining all the glory that would occur in and through the events of that individual's life. If the individual had no capacity to do something and God did something great through him or her, then he got all the glory for what God had done. And so these illustrations are given to you and I today to encourage us not only to believe in God, but more specifically to believe God, to have faith in God. For apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. And we define faith in a very simple way, but I think it really illustrates the point for us. We use the example of a bridge across a cavern, somewhere in a remote location. And we illustrated through this uh, picture of this bridge the difference between simply knowing, believing, and having faith. If I am an individual who lives in the area and I simply know that that bridge exists in that remote location, then I can say to you confident, uh, with confidence, yes, I know that bridge exists. I have knowledge of that bridge. Yes, in that remote location, there is a bridge. If I know more about the bridge... For example, people have crossed it safely. I then can say that I believe that that bridge is capable of supporting your weight and allowing you to cross safely from one side of the cavern to the other, because others have done it before you. And therefore, I can say, yes, I believe that that bridge is capable of supporting your weight and can take you from one place to the other safely. However, though, if I go out to that remote location knowing the bridge is there, believing that the bridge is capable of supporting my weight and taking me safely across the cavern, faith would be demonstrated by me placing my first foot upon it and beginning to walk across that bridge. That's faith. That's what God wants from you and I. He wants us to be able not only to know and to believe, but to have faith. Take that step forward, knowing for certain, with great confidence, that what He has promised, He is able to perform. We can say to ourselves, I know that God has made me several promises in His Word. 
I believe that God is capable of fulfilling those promises in which he has made to me. But it's only when we approach them by faith that we can say, I am resting upon the promises of God and I am waiting for God to fulfill his promises in my life because I know that he can. Allowing it to sustain us, allowing it to carry us, allowing us to bring us from point A to point B in our walk and relationship with God. That's the difference that I see in many people's individuals' lives today. Oh, they know about God. They believe in God. But their faith won't allow them to carry them forward in their relationship with God. Instead of trusting His promises, they have trusted something else in its place to carry them and to move them forward. And as we've been looking at the different individuals found within the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we've called them inductees to the hall of faith, but there are individuals that have demonstrated faith from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation that aren't found in this particular chapter. It's a never-ending story. In fact, your name can be entered into this category if you simply will proceed by faith. Let us remind ourselves also that this letter was written with the intention of speaking to the original recipients of this letter. The book of Hebrews was written by, well, we don't know. In fact, most scholars place within it, only God knows who wrote Hebrew. I believe that through uh, the analysis of the grammar and the phrasing and the uh, robust understanding of the Jewish religious culture, I believe Paul put Hebrews forward. But again, I cannot substantiate that with 100% um, you know, confidence, so I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but he is writing to Hebrew Christians, individuals who were Jewish their entire life until Jesus Christ interrupted everything, and then they saw that he was the fulfillment of all the promises of the coming Messiah. They realized who he was, they received him as Lord and Savior, and they began to walk in this new life of Christianity. And at first, they were welcomed amongst their Jewish brethren. For Acts chapter 2 tells us that when the church initially started, they found favor in the sight of everyone. This was a good thing. There was something exciting about this. There was something new about this. There was such love and generosity amongst them. And people saw them with great favor. But then the religious leaders started to poison the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people. They saw Christianity as a threat to their places of prominence and power there in Jerusalem. And they began to orchestrate a a series of campaigns, and we find this in Josephus and, and so forth, and we discover that the religious leaders came down heavy upon this new organized uh, group that they called Christians, or more specifically, those of the way. And as a result, the temperature there in Jerusalem went from you know, uh, warm and welcoming to hot and uh, full of persecution and venom. And so these new Christians, these Jewish Christians, began to flee from Jerusalem. In the New Testament, two books are written to these individuals. They're called the dispersa, the disposal, the individuals that left Jerusalem. James is written to these people. Peter acknowledges these people in his first letter. 
As Paul says, I've gone to the Gentile, but Peter has gone to the Jews. He's writing to these Jewish believers, and I believe that's why 1 Peter contains so many uh, phrases that Jewish people could associate and identify with. Uh, the same thing with the book of James. It's the Proverbs of the New Testament. But seeing this dispersion of these people under the weight of persecution, they then went into the regions around Israel called uh, Asia Minor. We know it as the modern-day area of Turkey today. And they began to live amongst those individuals, but their welcome was short-lived. The Jewish people and Christians had a problem in the pagan society. It wasn't that the pagans weren't willing to accept their God. The problem was is the Christians and the Jews weren't willing to accept their gods, plural. You place an individual with what's called a monotheistic understanding of God, that there's only one true God in the midst of a society that is, uh, you know, where pluralism reigns where a polytheistic understanding of God or a pluralistic thinking of theology of God, you know, where there's many gods that must be acknowledged, including Caesar himself as a god. Now, these Jewish Christians, they had their backs against the wall. They had just lost their wealth. They lost their homeland. They lost their identity. They lost everything. They went into Asia Minor. They lost even further. Now they're finding themselves as nomads living in the wilderness. And you know what they're asking themselves? The question, what is this worth it? Why, is it, why are we doing what we're doing? At least when we were Jews, we had our homeland. At least when we were Jews, we had our wealth and our material possessions. At least when we were Jews, the the Romans treated us with some type of respect. Now we're not getting anything. And they were turning from Christianity and going back to Judaism. And then this letter to the Hebrews was written and saying, no, 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 no. You're never going to find in Judaism what only Jesus can offer. And that's the crux of this entire book. But to move forward and to continue moving forward, the writer of Hebrews knew that faith was required. So he reminded them of their heroes, Abraham and Sarah, etc. Abel and Noah and Enoch and Moses. Saying all of these individuals had to operate by faith and so do you today. And you need to keep moving forward as they did and what propelled them forward was their faith. Their faith was like a seventh sense within their body. It allowed them to interact with the spiritual world as a physical reality here in this world. Now, of course, today secularists and humanists will like to argue the fact, and naturalists, that nothing exists apart from the physical world in which we live. And they put forth this argument constantly before Christians, saying there's nothing more than what we see around us. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, we know there's a lot more than what we see here before us. In fact, I would argue just the opposite, that this is not the reality that we should be concerned about. It is the reality that we cannot see that we should be concerned about, a reality where we're not going to spend just merely 80, 90 to maybe 100 years, but a reality where we will spend eternity. Everlasting life is a promise to each and every individual. The key is, where will you spend that life? In heaven or apart from God in hell, where he created hell for the devil and his angels? And if you have any question if 
we believe in a literal hell here at Calvary, I will say emphatically, yes, we do. And Jesus talked about hell more than almost any of them in the New Testament. Why? Because he didn't want anybody to go there. That being said, like the individuals then, we today find ourselves in a position or a place of crossroads. Christians are now deciding because they see that the road ahead of them doesn't look as cheerful, as happy, as pleasant as it once did. We understand now that our thinking and our standard of morality no longer coincides and, uh, and um, exists in harmony with that of secular society. We will say that a lifestyle is not honoring of God. We will say that destroying the life of an unborn is murder. We will say that intimacy before marriage is a sin before God. We will say that lying is not graded on a scale from white to black. We hold to a standard of morality that is now becoming so foreign uh, foreign to our secular society that it has become antagonistic. The morality that we hold to has become a provocation to this world. Even if we do not verbalize the necessity of the individual before us to live that way, us just simply abstaining from these things is causing difficulty here in America today. Because we're not joining in. We live in a society, in a society today that needs constant validation that what they are doing is right. I don't know about you, but it's getting harder and harder to watch television, isn't it? And even a show that my wife and I started watching called The Good Doctor, and we were enjoying it initially, has become nothing more than a platform for propaganda. And it's so obvious. Of course, you have to have every typical, every lifestyle depicted within the film, right? A homosexual, a lesbian, then you have to have one of every nationality and so forth. It's interesting to me that we need constant validation all the time to continuously remind us that what we are doing wrong is right. Isn't it amazing? I know your conscience may be saying it's wrong, but society says it's right. Who are you going to listen to? And so things have become difficult for Christians. The political arena has become difficult. The arena at our workplace has become difficult. We don't know what to say. We're beyond political correctness. We are in a completely uncharted territory. We don't know what is considered sexual harassment, just like we don't know what a fair catch in football is anymore. I see that there's two football fans out there. We live in uncharted territory, and Christians are saying to themselves, is it worth it to keep going? You know, the farther I go down this road, the bleaker it looks, and I am just going to bring more hatred upon myself. I'm going to be persecuted uh, more likely as I move forward. It's certainly looking more rocky than the road that everybody else is traveling. Is it worth it? It is worth it because Jesus told us where these roads were going. One to everlasting life and one to utter destruction. 
We've enjoyed a period of time in our nation like no other period of time in history where Christianity was embraced to the point that it was and it was uh, reverenced and respected to the point that it was, but no longer that be the case. And yet God is still working, isn't he? Greater today than he has in a long time. People are asking about him. People are wondering about him. We are talking to students who have no clue what the Bible or the gospel is. It's incredible. For the fields are white for snow. But Christians are struggling. Should we keep going forward? Should we just pitch it in? Should we just be like everybody else and, and you know, weather the storm in that way? Even though Jesus told us that we were going to be hated, I think we all kind of took that with a kind of a grain of salt. Well, you know, this is a more uh, progressive time and we've advanced in our evolution as a society. And so they hated him back then, but no, we're okay today. And now they're starting to hate us and we're starting to wonder why. He told us, listen, you follow me, they're going to hate you. Why? Because they hated me first. That's why. That's why the world hates us is because they hated him. Why did they hate him? Because the darkness runs from the light consistently. And that's what we're seeing in our society today. But God is still working. And we are going through this to encourage you this morning. Because in the circumstances that we find ourselves in, God may be testing us to bring forth the best that is within us. Satan, on the other hand is tempting us to draw out the worst from us. And in our passage this morning, as we continue to look at the life of Abraham, and of course much is devoted to him, and rightfully so, because of the incredible way in which God worked through him. Abraham was promised that through his son, his descendants would be more numerous than the stars and more numerous than the grains of sand along the seashore. And yet now he's 100 years old and he doesn't have any kids. So he took things into his own hands, which you and I all often do. And uh, Sarah prompted, his wife prompted him saying, listen, we're getting old, Abraham. Let's face facts. We're getting old. Listen, I know God has made us a promise. My handmaiden Hagar is here. She is uh, fertile. She is able to bear children. Just have an evening with her have a child through her as a surrogate, and we then can fulfill the promises of God. And Abraham, being the man of conviction that he was, said, okay. And he went ahead and had a child through the handmaiden Hagar named Ishmael. And now he felt, and she felt, Sarah felt, that this could now fulfill the promises of God. Even though after Ishmael was born, Sarah began to hate Hagar and became bitter and envious of her and began to be bitter and envious of Ishmael and was only further reminded of what she was personally incapable of doing. And so they ended up sending them off. And then God came back and said, no, I'm going to still give you a child through your wife, Sarah. And now they're older and everything's not working like it once did. They were both past the age of being able to bear children physically. It wasn't possible for them to conceive, yet alone carry and deliver full term. And yet Jesus said, and I believe it was Jesus who appeared to Abraham there at that moment in the text, said, this time next year you will have a son. 
Well, Sarah, eavesdropping in on the conversation behind the curtain, laughed to herself. And then Jesus asked Abraham, putting him on the spot, calling him out, why did Sarah just laugh? Oh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't laugh. I, I, I didn't. No, no, I did not. Can you, can you say, Jesus, you're wrong. I know you're omnipotent. I know you know all things, but you're wrong in this case. And sure enough, one year later, she gave birth to a child named Isaac, whose name means laughter, which is great. God has a sense of humor and likes to remind us thereof. And as she's, every time she would handle and care for and nurse that little boy, looking at him, knowing his name was Isaac, and through him, all the promises of God was going to be fulfilled. It was a glorious thing, knowing that his name was laughter. She said, oh, when people read this, they're going to laugh. Ordinary people. Sarah, at her age, was able to bear a child. It's incredible what God did. He gets all the glory for it. Well, fast forward now. And we come to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is now probably more like 30 years old. There was a time where people thought he was about 17, but that has been revisited. And I agree with those who conclude that he's more around 30 years old at this time. And God approaches Abraham and says, now I want you to do something for me, Abraham. Abraham, sure, what? I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, I want you to take him on top of this mountain in which I will dedicate and show you specifically, and I want you to sacrifice him upon that mountain to me. The child that they had waited for for so long. The child in whom the name would continue from Isaac to Jacob to the twelve tribes. God is now saying, I want you to kill him and offer him on to me. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says that God approached Abraham to test him. It's a word that we're going to look at greatly today because God's tests can only be met with one resolve, and that is trust. God's tests towards us can only be met met with one resolve, and that is trust from us in Him. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this in verse uh, 17. And by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, drawing that directly from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. I'll let you, for time's sake, read the backstory yourself. It is an incredible account. This is what the writer of Hebrews is drawing from. When God approached Abraham and said, you shall offer your son to me, it was a test. Now, interestingly enough, in the Bible, this Greek word is used in two different places, and is translated in two different manners. I should more specifically say it is used in two different ways, and it's translated in two different ways. This word test can also be translated in the English word to the word tempt. It is the same Greek word. 
And the King James translators had real difficulty with this because they relied on the Latin more than the Greek because they were all Latin scholars, but few of them were uh, proficient in the Greek, though they put forward a fantastic translation. But when they came to this word, their notes in their ledgers said, we don't know which way to go with this because it can mean tempt and it can mean test. When you come to a discovery like that and a word like that, I'm going to give you the secret formula today on how to translate such a word. And once I tell you this, I can't let you leave here alive. When you find a Greek word that is translated two different ways due to the context in which it is found, in some cases it's translated test, in other ways it's translated tempt. You must then look at each individual case on how those words are rendered to discover why the translators went one way rather than the other. And I will say it to you this way. I've done the work for you, so I'll give it to you in a cliff notes form, and then you can impress people at parties with your theological knowledge. When God approached someone to test them, the testing process was not to show God what the individual was going to do, for God already knew what the individual was going to do. He's omnipotent. You know, he knows everything. He knew if the person's going to pass or fail, right? The testing process is not solely for the one administering the test. There's much debate about this in education. Should testing be done in education? And often the arguments against testing in education only take into consideration the, the consequence and the, uh, the effect that it has upon the one administering the test. Meaning that if the testing is only going to uh, show the teacher where the individual is at, then why do it? That's their argument, good or bad. However, though, testing is not only for the one administering the test, it's the one taking the test that is also involved in the process to show them where their own heart is at. When I take a test, I don't look at answering these answers correctly or wrongly to just simply uh, appease the one who is administrating. I want to know if I know the information. I want to know if I've comprehended what I have been taught. I am looking at that test and how it benefits me. And that's the way God approaches this. And when God tests someone, knowing what they're already going to do before they do it, is testing them so they will know what they're going to do when they do it. So they will get a peek inside the heart of the individual. And when God tests someone, it's always to draw out the better of them, to draw them uh, into more of the image of Jesus Christ, to draw them closer to him. When someone is tempted, they are being drawn upon in the same manner. It's, a, it's actually a term used in metallurgy. It's, it's a term that is used for uh, curing or purifying metal. By heating it up, 
and allowing the dross to come to the top of the, uh, the metal and then to be scraped off. And it was a term used for an individual purifying gold. And they would keep heating the gold to a certain degree and a certain level, removing the dross, removing the dross until the gold was so reflectant that they could see themselves perfectly within it. What a great illustration. These tests are to draw out from us the very best so that he, God, Jesus, can see a perfect reflection of himself within our lives. So that's what these testings are all about. When Satan tempts an individual, it's just for the opposite reason, to draw out the worst and to contravene God's directives or his instructions. Let me give you an example. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil used the word of God in an underhanded way, in an incomplete way, in an inaccurate way to draw him to certain actions. Jesus, of course, being the author of the scripture, knew his tactics and was able to quote the scripture perfectly and show the devil that he was taking it out of context and approaching it in an in a Ill, Ill manner and therefore trying to stumble and create sin within a sinless individual. But Jesus was also tested. This word is used by the religious leaders. And their intent was to draw out of him his true identity of Messiah. Now, he did not subject himself to the tests often because he had already given enough proof to whom he already was. But that is the idea behind these words. Number one, that God uses testing to draw out the best from us. And, God, and Satan uses tempting to draw out the worst in us. This word test means to try to learn the nature or character of someone or something by submitting to such, to thorough and extensive testing. To test, to examine, to put to test examination and revelation. It's meant to reveal something. Now, we know from the book of Job that Job was not able to be approached by Satan until God gave him the permission to do so. And often when we find ourselves in places of temptation, we are given the promise that no temptation before us will be too great for us to resist it. But if we do fall to it, it's only demonstrating and showing to us our weakness and our greater need and dependency for the Holy Spirit and for God's grace. And even in that case, God is using it for his glory. So he can say something like this, all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. See how that works? Now, the process of testing is something that Paul said to us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Notice what he says here, the same Greek word. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul's saying is, allow yourself to be tested. Test yourself so you know for certain that you are in the faith. When it came to Jesus, the writer stated this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. And of course, James writes it this way. 
Because some of us may say, well, is God tempting me to do wrong? Well, no, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. See, God doesn't use these things to set you up to fail. He uses these things, and he approaches you in these manners, tests you in this manner, because he knew exactly what Abraham was going to do. Abraham was going to allow his son to be sacrificed. And so in, Re- in Genesis 22, we come to that point now where they travel for three days. They come to this mountain that God has selected called, called Mount Moriah. And as Abraham is departing with his son, who is carrying up undoubtedly the wood and everything needed for this sacrifice, the son realizes on their way up that they have nothing to sacrifice. And then Abraham gives us the revelation that the whole crux of the account is based upon. And he says, God will provide himself a sacrifice on our behalf. Before Abraham left, though, he said to the servants there at the bottom of the mountain, the, the, the lad and I, the King James Version, the young man and I are going to go up this mountain and worship God. It's the first time that worship is used in the Bible. It's the first mention of the word. In the process of hermeneutics, the law of first mention is this, that the first mention of a word within the Bible usually carries with it its true definition. Worship of God is more than simply just singing songs, praising Him through the music in which we are led by. The worship of a God should entail this one element that we often try to avoid, and that is sacrifice. Sacrifice is at the heart of the worship of God. God knew that the most precious thing that Abraham had was his son Isaac. And now God is saying, will you give him to me? This most precious thing. The one in whom I have promised that all things will branch through. Will you give him to me? And in our text in Hebrews, it says that as Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, again, in the Greek, we have to take what is called the Greek tense into consideration to understand the true meaning of this word. Not just the meaning of the word, but what I call the action of the word. This word offered up, which we have for uh, two English words for one Greek word, is what's called, what's, we find it in the tense that's called the perfect active indicative. It will be a test afterwards. The perfect active indicative. Well, pastor, what in the world does that mean? It means that in Abraham's mind, the sacrifice has already taken place. And he is looking at his son as if his son were dead. The moment that God asked Abraham to give his only son onto him, Abraham saw his son as dead and walked with his son whom he viewed and perceived as dead for three days to Mount Moriah. And on that mountain, he concluded that whatever was going to happen next, no matter what was going to happen next, God was not only going to 
show himself moment, but yet still fulfill the promise in which he made to me so many years earlier, 30 years earlier, that through Isaac, the descendants of the world will be blessed. All the nations of the world will be blessed. Somehow, some way, even if I give Isaac back in the form of this sacrifice, somehow, some way, God is still going to keep the promise in which he has made to me. Now, you would think that the conflict that Abraham had in his mind and heart was a conflict of love towards his son. This is my son in whom I love. It's the most precious thing I have. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't track that in that direction. The writer of Hebrews tells us that what conflicted Abraham was this. God promised that he would do this through Isaac, but now he's asking me to kill him. So therefore, how can he fulfill his promise? And the conclusion that Abraham came to is, I don't know, but he will. Because God is able to do what God has said he will do. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he is going to do it. So for three days, he was walking with his son, his precious son, his only son. For God did not recognize Ishmael to be the one to come after Abraham. It was his only son. The Greek word is monogenes in the Greek, and it's used of Jesus Christ also, his only son. Unique individual. And as a result, he's walking with his only son, considering him already dead, undoubtedly played through his mind the events that are still yet to occur. Not knowing what God would do next on his behalf. And so, Abraham in pure obedience and pure faith in God took his son all the way to the point that not only did they climb Mount Moriah, but the, the account in Genesis 22 tells us that Isaac willingly laid himself on that altar to be sacrificed. The account tells us that he even took the knife in his hand and rose it above his son. Not knowing what God was going to do next, not having any clue, but God was going to fulfill the promise in which God had made to him so many years earlier, one way or another. Even if it was to the point that he would bring Isaac back from the dead. In fact, that's what our writer states here for us very clearly. It states here in verse 18, of whom it was said that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered God was able. And here's the second point of our message today. That the testing of God must be met with the resolve of trust. And that's what we see in the word able. Even to raise him from the dead. Figuratively speaking, that's exactly what had occurred. When he got to Mount Moriah, he set everything up. He began the, the sacrificial process. He raised the knife before Abraham, I mean before God, above his son Isaac, and was about to plunge it to the point of death of his only son, where the voice of heaven then cried out and said, Oh, stop. Stop. Stop right there. I'm going to provide the sacrifice. 
I'm going to provide the sacrifice. Now you may say, oh, that is just so cruel of God. Why did he make Abraham languish in such a way for three days? To think that his son was dead for three days and then all of a sudden at the last minute on the third day, it was like his son rose again because God had stayed his hand. Well, let me tell you why God did it. In fact, Jesus told us in John's Gospel, chapter 8, that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, Jesus said. And then he went on, he said, he saw it and was glad. Why did God allow Abraham to go through that incredible, difficult time, the death of three days, his son, then getting his son back, and he was confident that he would in one way or another, even if God had to raise him from the dead. Let me give you a hint to the entire story. 2,000 years later, that same mountain was no longer called Mount Moriah. It was called Golgotha. It was called Calvary. And God was saying to the entire world that, Abraham, what you have done, I will do 2,000 years later. My son will walk up this exact same hill at 33 years of age, and he will be sacrificed for the sins of the entire world. That's why Abraham had to go through this. It was a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the Father's hands did not stay the executioners of Christ, did they? For Christ gave himself as a sacrifice because of the love that he had, not only for you and I, but for of his heavenly Father. The night before, Christ wept bitterly and said, Not my will, but your will be done, Father. 2,000 years after that fact, I could just see as the crucifixion of Christ is taking place, there in the background, in the shadows, there's this altar and there's this boy and there's Abraham. And now it's being climaxed in this ultimate fulfillment of the God's only Son being sacrificed for the sins of the world. Why? That all the nations of the world may be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. That's why God did what he did. Remember what he said to Abraham. I will provide myself a sacrifice. I will be that sacrifice. My son will carry the same wood that your son carried up this mountain. And I will not stay his executioner's hands, but allow that moment to take place that all the world may know that I love them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. How powerful are those words in the light of all that we have discussed today. It was Abraham's faith in God. Abraham trusted God. God, you've gave me the son Isaac, and I don't know how you did it. I have no clue. Our bodies weren't working. In fact, Paul made it very clear. It was like they were dead, both Abraham and Sarah. Nice to be remembered that way. But yet God did it. Now God was asking for that son back. And yet for Abraham, he's just resided in his heart to say, I don't know how God's going to do it. 
but he's going to do it. One way or another, God's going to fulfill his promises. And from the very beginning in Genesis 22.5, Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkeys and I and the boy will go over there to worship and come again to you. The resurrection of his son was already in the heart and mind of Abraham. One way or another, God was going to do what God has promised that he was going to do. There is so much we can learn from this in our faith. When our backs are against the wall, where God is trying to draw out the best from us by putting us in very difficult circumstances. You know, unfortunately, to purify gold in that manner, you have to heat it up, right? Sometimes God has to heat up our lives to draw the junk out of us to get the very best from us. We don't like it. We love it if we just conform beautifully into the image of Jesus Christ when everything was great and I was being blessed from every direction. That would be wonderful. But it doesn't work that way. God works through our difficulties and our troubles and trials and tribulations to bring about the best within us conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. I believe, and I'm going to make a really profound statement, not that it's profound that I'm saying it, but just a profound statement of itself. I believe that this is the example of perfect faith in the Bible. Why? Because it constitutes the greatest depth of sacrifice. And not that Abraham in and of himself warranted or generated this faith. It wasn't the faith that is the object of our attention. It's whom he had faith in that should be the object of our attention. He just knew God so well. God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you're going to do it. I trust you to do it. This is the most valuable thing that I have here on this earth. It's valuable to me and Sarah, and it's valuable to you because God, through him, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to do it somehow, some way. A perfect example of faith. The second thing we must consider is, is there something that we are holding on to that is so precious to us that it has moved from a blessing to an idol? that it has become the hindrance of allowing God to work in and through us to the degree and to the uh, manner in which he so desires to. It's something that we need to consider. It's something we can answer immediately. But think of God coming to us and asking us to do that with our own child. That's That's hard to think of. Especially if you're like my wife and I and we only have one. She was perfect, so we just stopped there. We got an angel the first time. We were afraid of the Antichrist was coming the second. But the point was, is that what if it was that? Or what if it's something else that's so precious in my heart that it's become an idol, keeping me from the very uh, intimate relationship that God wants me to, and he draws that out, and he says, give that to me. Oh, wait a minute, Lord. And the tug of war begins between us and God. I don't know if I should. I don't know if I can, Lord. It's so precious to me. What is there that is so precious to us that God can't even give us greater in the wake of its absence? That's the way we need to consider it. And I'm being vague, and there's a lot of ambiguity in that statement because I want you to fill in the details, fill in the blanks in your own mind and hearts. 
I'll read this to you in conclusion, if I may. I felt this was very well-worded, and I just want to leave this in its integrity and just give it to you as it is. If you are afraid to trust God with your most prized possession, dream, or person, pay attention to Abraham's example, he writes, because Abraham was willing to give up everything for God. He received back more than he could ever have imagined. What we receive, however, is not always immediate or in the form of material possessions. Material things should be among the least satisfying of all rewards. Our best and greatest rewards await for us in eternity. So if I sacrifice something now and I don't see the immediate return from that sacrifice, should I be discouraged? No. You see, God is more concerned with my eternal standing than He is with my temporal comforts. And if He knows that drawing something out of my heart that has become an idol will hurt me a little bit at this moment, but in the long term will benefit me and allow me to grow closer to God and allow me to experience God in the manner in which he wants me to experience him and allow him to use me as God uses me. And then reaping the eternal weight of the rewards for all eternity, guess what God's going to do? He's going to sacrifice the temporal comfort for the eternal glory. That's what God's going to do. I can't fathom what Abraham felt like those three days, thinking that his child was dead. But I also cannot imagine the relief, the praise, the adoration of God, the awe of God when he heard those words, stay that hand. I'm going to provide myself a sacrifice. And next week, we celebrate that sacrifice together. What an appropriate way to ramp up to that day. When you have a moment, take a time to yourself and read Genesis 22, 1 through 19. And just let that account sink into your mind and your heart, knowing that the echoes of that account 2,000 years later would be the Son of God being crucified on that same place for the sins of the world.